So last night we took up together the koan of Mu, which is of course the traditional thing to do on an opening night of Seshin. And when we did, we were actually walked into what Susan described as the field of silence. You know, the field of silence that is our lives, actually. And I think we all actually managed to get a taste of that this afternoon, sitting out in this grand field of session out there on the grass with the trees, all so round, 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 until a bull ant actually came and bit me. Sit <laughs> 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 there, sharp, sharp. That's right. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. <laughs> but this silence is a beautiful thing, and I loved actually when Susan described how difficult it is in fact to ease this silence into words and ease this silence actually into deeds, into our conduct, into our action in life. This is a delicate and beautiful matter for each one of us to settle, to touch and to convey. That's why we're here. And this quality of convey is so sort of palpable right now. We're in the midst of a transmission session. You know, what else is there but conveyance? You know, the arrival of each thing just as it is, without fail, each moment, as this one, as this person. That's what we're here to discover and taste for ourselves. So tonight I want to actually with Zhao Zhou's devilish prompt of Mu, this non-syllable Mu that trembles on the edge of this silence. With that in the room and with that in mind, I want to take up another case from the collection of Zhao Zhou, which explores the matter of transmission and also takes up the very interesting question of what on earth does a teacher do? <laughs> what are they doing when they sit here? What is the relationship between transmission and teaching? What is teaching? And how might we be doing it ourselves all the time? All the time. So this case comes from, as I say, the record of Jaja, which is my new Bible. <laughs> <laughs> on sale at all good bookstores. In fact, I did get this in a bookstore many years ago, and the man who sold it to me said, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is case 30 from the record. And a monk asked Zhao Zhou, what is the fact of my nature? The master said, shake the tree, and the birds take to the air, startle the fish, and the water becomes muddy. What an interesting response to a very interesting question. Now, what is the fact of my nature? Aren't we gathered here like this to touch and ascertain and realise exactly that question? The fact of our nature, the most natural fact that we are. But I want to start with this monk and the fact that he does actually ask this particular question 
because I don't think this is any kind of green monk. This is not a straightforwardly innocent question. There's a forthrightness to it, a strength to it, a kind of directness to the energy of this question that I think is unmissable. And I'm reminded a little of Dogen, who once, with an assembly like this, the old teachers seemed to love doing this. They'd ask questions that no one could answer. (laughs) (laughs) He said, how is the person who has attained? And nobody could answer. So he answered on their behalf and said, body and mind are upright and direct. The voice is strong. It's a beautiful response, beautiful answer. And I hear this in the monk's question. What is the fact of my nature? And I think Zhao Zhou hears that strength too, that upright, direct, you know, the voice is strong. So Zhao Zhou answers this question that comes from a strong place, a place that perhaps has the you know, quality of now, I've touched a little bit of my self-nature. I've, I've, I've felt a little bit what it's like to be natural. What, what do I do with this? You know, where do I go from here? How do I walk from here? How do I walk this into my life? And that's where Jojo responds with this, shake the tree and the birds take to the air. Startle the fish and the water becomes muddy. And I want to take the two halves, if you like, well, be rude and cut these two in half just for a little time and we'll bring back both back together at the end. But I want to do this in turn. So to begin with, Jaldra says, shake the tree and the birds take to the air. How does this resonate in you? The shake the tree and the birds take to the air. Well, shaking the tree, of course, has a traditional meaning of taking up the teaching to teach, shake the tree, shake the tree. And the tree has always been synonymous with the Dharma, of course. We heard about Shakyamuni sitting underneath the Bodhi tree last night. And I love that he sat there after his supposed enlightenment experience for 49 days. I love that they counted that, (laughs) 49 days until he shook himself free from that tree. Stood up and shook himself free in order to step into the world, you know, to walk along those dusty and muddy paths of the Ganges and mingle with all of the people that he would meet and all the beings that he would meet and carry on this shaking free, this shaking free. So, There's a beautiful quality here of when something is shaken free, it's shaken free from its clinging, you know, from its grasping. Even the birds here in this image are shaken free. They might have their talons wrapped around those topmost branches, but it's the most natural thing in the world if something is shaken for them to fly off, fly into that open, grand, empty sky. Of course they will. Of course they will. It's natural. It's a natural fact. So there's a lot of letting go here. And a single word of the teaching can be just that shake that allows one of us to let go, 
to let go entirely, to stop grasping onto that thing that we thought was so precious, even if we think it's Buddhism itself. Have that shaken free. And notice too that the teacher does not do this from some sort of on high place. The teacher's below the tree, you know, below these birds that are in the tree. They're in a position of service. This is very much the character of teaching. The teaching does not preach the Dharma. The teaching just shakes with the Dharma. That's what teaching is after all. So let's take up an example of somebody shaking this tree. And of course, I'm going to use Jarjo again. (laughs) Because he has another very, very famous koan that I'm sure many of you here will be familiar with. I'm going to use the version that comes from Entangling Vines, which is a koan collection that just puts an extra little twist on perhaps what is a familiar koan case. So here it is, case nine from Entangling Vines. A monk once asked Zhao Zhou, what is the meaning of body dharmas coming from the West? And you might take this as, what is the meaning of Zen? Why have I come here? You know, what, what is the nature of transmission even? You know, what, what is this, is at the heart of this question? Zhao Zhou answered, the juniper tree in the front garden. The monk replied, Master, don't teach me using external objects. (laughs) Zhao Zhou said, I'm not teaching you using external objects. The monk said, then what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? Zhao Zhou answered, the juniper tree in the front garden. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know if anybody's had a chance to look at that beautiful squiggly white gum Mm. that's out there. But that is the meaning of bodhidharma is coming from the West. Go and have a look. <laughs> Go and see for yourself. And it's a beautiful footnote to the use of this juniper tree. Some people here will be familiar with the oak tree in the courtyard is the translation of this. But it's now seen to be more accurate to say juniper tree. And one of the values of that is that the juniper tree was apparently especially useless. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible for lumber or just about any other purpose, which is very relatable. (laughs) I'm terrible for lumber (laughs) or just about any other purpose. So it's beautiful to have this useless, you know, dimension, useless for anything, for any use, you know, free of that kind of prescribed... Use value. We're so used to use value in this life now. Now, there's almost a capping, capping dimension to this case too, where Fayyam, great Fayyam, another wonderful old teacher in our tradition, founder of the Fayyam school, in fact, Fayyam Wenyi, he actually asked one of Zhao Zhou's descendants, You know, and here we have to look into the nature of transmission and what is transmitted. Fayan Wenyi asked this Dharma descendant of Zhao Zhou's called Zhui Tuizhi. He asked, I heard that your teacher Zhao Zhou spoke of a juniper tree. Is that true? 
And Zhui Tzu said, my late teacher never said such a thing. Don't slander him. <laughs> and Fayan commented, ah, a true lion's cub gives a good lion's roar. <laughs> and we don't know much about this Dharma descendant of Zhao Zhou's. Unfortunately, he possibly deserves his own record. We don't know. But we do know a lot about Fayan. Fayan was an exacting and discerning old teacher. And Fayan is checking the transmission here. He's actually checking to see, you know, how will Zhao Zhou's descendant respond to this question of the juniper tree? And of course, Tweetsi says, my late teacher never said such a thing. Don't slander him. So if Zhao Zhou never said such a thing, what did he say? What did he say? And are any of us still clinging to the juniper tree or the oak tree or any kind of tree for the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? Or have we been shaken free? Have we been shaken free already? So there's a lot of shaking actually that goes on in the record and I couldn't resist slipping in another um, shaking koan. And this one's called, <laughs> well the translation I have comes from the record of Empty Hall, translated by Doshe Port. He's got a little bit of a sort of beat poet <laughs> spirit to him. And he's called this one Margu's Bodacious Presentation. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the case. This is case seven. So Ma Gu went to national teacher Zhang, shook his staff once and stood brilliantly still. The teacher said, you are already thus. What use in meeting me? Ma Gu again gave his staff a single shake. And on behalf of others, the compiler of the record of Empty Hall, Xu Tang himself, said, the offspring meets me intimately. So what a performance. Imagine somebody just came in here <laughs> with a staff, shook the staff twice, and stood brilliantly still. Great. <laughs> <laughs> just might happen. You never know. <laughs> Session. strange things happen at Session. Well, it's interesting that the... The teacher says, you are already thus, already thus. And which one of us is not already thus, already thus, in whatever particular individual kind of shaking we might be experiencing, already thus. But he recognises this man and says, what use in meeting me? It's almost like, you know, why would we even talk about transmission if it's just about this shared, you know, as we already are? But Margu again gives his staff a single shake. And that's when Zhu Tang says, the offspring meets me intimately. The offspring meets me intimately. Meets Zhu Tang. You know, meets you and me intimately. And again, in this case, there's a little bit of a secret capping dimension to it. I actually looked this one up. I'm such a koan nerd. <laughs> I've got a whole <laughs> library of you know, going deeper and deeper and deeper. 
But I went to the original record of the transmission of the lamp and there's just an extra little moment here where after Margu shakes his staff the second time, the national teacher says, wild fox spirit, get out. (laughs) Get out. What a beautiful moment here where the national teacher actually shakes Margu's shaking. She says, okay, all right. But perhaps he knew that Margu was this character quite famous in old China for going around different zendos, shaking his staff. And I would actually like to add a footnote to that, that this shaking as Margu got older got subtler and subtler and subtler to the point where, as you might know in the Genjo Koan, he just ends up fanning himself. Just fanning himself. But repeating things almost in a performative way, is that helpful? Does that get us anywhere in our life? Is that enough to actually have some sort of formulaic presentation or not? Is this wild fox spirit, get out, is this censure, is this praise or is it something else? I think there's very much a dimension of get out. Get out into the wild. Get out into your life. Get out and really shake with what is shaking all around you. And I want to actually share with you, when I think of shaking myself, I'm always thinking of, I'm reminded of times when I've been out in the bush and I'm particularly thinking of, you know, around about 10 years ago when I used to spend a lot of time out in the bush painting and there was never anybody out there because I'd always go to the most remote possible places to set up my easel and, you know, do some work. But very occasionally there would be a shake in one of the bushes and this man called Doug Ralph, you know, old friend, mentor of mine, who seemed to do nothing but walk around in the bush. He was one of these old sort of bushy, big beard, but encyclopedic knowledge of everything that was out there. And every time this would happen, I'd hear the shake. His little dog, Rocky, would come darting out. And then Doug Ralph would follow and he'd say, Keenan, I found something. Come and have a look. And I'd have to stop what I was doing. You know, I'd have to let go of whatever painting I was working on, even if it was right in the last final little detail, and follow Doug Ralph out into the bush. And sometimes it was, you know, got walk over all these ridges and things to get to a little pile of scrappy twigs and things which he would carefully unpick and then he would say see this this is the one spider orchid in the whole friars range (laughs) (coughs) extraordinary and he used to know all sorts of other things too he'd say oh stop keenan see that and i wouldn't really see it there'd just be a little brown pile and he'd say that's owl vomit (laughs) (laughs) let's have a look And he used to love the trees. He knew where all the old Chinese market gardens were and he knew everything. In fact, I've never known somebody to love trees so much. So the irony wasn't lost on the community when, after a lightning strike, a tree fell on him (laughs) and nearly killed him. And he just laughed and said, well, I've always wanted to be buried in a tree. (laughs) And I nearly was. (laughs) But my favourite time with Doug was actually walking with him towards sunset one night. And as the sun was 
slowing, we just both fell into a kind of lull, natural silence. You know, a silence with the sun setting, canopy of the trees, just the low bush, just side by side, walking along. And then at one point he just said, stop, it's happening. And I, of course, didn't know what he was talking about. And then as the sun just sank lower, 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 it hit just the right angle that the entire canopy of the trees lit up. But not the ground and not the sky. Just this luminous, glowing, shaking, shimmering canopy of trees. And we were both speechless in that time. And even though Doug is dead now, and I was a pallbearer at his cemetery, and we didn't get to bury him in his tree, I know where to find him. I can find him. I can find the fact of his nature in that tree, in that glowing tree at just that time. Which brings us to this startle the fish and the water becomes muddy. This complementary side to this fact of our nature. Now, of course, this is another phrase for the teaching, but it has a very karmic edge to it. We're in very karmic waters with this startle the fish and the water becomes muddy. The image actually comes from an old Chinese fishing practice where apparently fishermen would uh, extend what they called a scare pole over the water, something made of um, bamboo with a clump of feathers at one end to resemble a bird, and they dangle it over the water to frighten the fish in a certain direction. And then they'd trap them or something in the, in the weeds there. And you can probably see or feel or kind of clue into a, a parallel with the teaching here. But is teaching really about scaring people? Or frightening people? Or even pushing them in a certain direction? We're really talking about skillful means here, upaya. Even one false note in the teaching can startle the fish, you know, can send them scurrying off and create a lot of mud and confusion in its wake. Very cloudy things can happen when the Dharma is, 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 is barked or, or even spoken from on high. There's a, there's a sense here too that there might be a little bit of a reflection of this person or this scare pole, this incredible contraption of the teaching you know, going over the water. There might also be a sense of the reflection of the person doing, doing that um, scaring. Just a little bit too much self there. A little bit too much self, perhaps, in the way. And again, this is the teacher perhaps imposing themselves, almost a little imperiously, over the student. That can startle the fish and make the water very muddy. Even so, just like when the birds take to the air and they have never left their element, the fish, when they are startled into that muddy water, have never left their element. They are also at home in this muddy water 
And there's a nice capping phrase from Zen Sand which actually says, pure, sorry, water that is completely pure has no fish. Interesting. You know, a life that aspires to be too pure, you know, too clean, too, too detached somehow, has no life, no nutrient, no power for the way. It's somehow a false place, an artificial place, a false aspiration, if you like. And that's why Dogen actually says this, reality is to go into the mud, enter the weeds, and expound the Dharma for the benefit of others. Turning the Dharma and helping beings is not something optional. I find this a very moving phrase. And we can actually talk about how just being here is not something optional. <laughs> here you are, you know, full, present, just as you are. It's not optional. So why not agree to the muddiness of this water, you know, the, the nutrient of this water, the mix of this water. What a beautiful place to actually discover ourselves. So instead of running away from this muddy water, we enter it wholeheartedly. Just like this kid's poem I found about mud. I think this is a beauty. It just says, What is mud? I do not know. Where does it come from? Does it grow? Mud is what it is, and so all it is, is mud. A little earth, a little rain mixed together. What's its name? Mud. <laughs> the garden, when it's very wet and has no grass or flowers yet, mud. The bottom of a puddle when you jump right in and out again, mud. And it's so convenient, isn't it, that right through this word mud is moo. <laughs> and you could actually recite the poem that way. I won't do the whole thing, but what is moo? I do not know. Where does it come from? Does it grow? Moo is what it is. And so, all it is, is moo. And there's such playfulness in this jumping in and out again. We've all been children, I'm sure we've all seen children. There's nothing more attractive than jumping in a puddle. <laughs> nothing more fun than getting a little bit dirty and experiencing the great splash you know, of life. What fun to be jumping in and out of the Dharma, you know, in and out of each other's lives. It's joy. It's a great pleasure to be jumping in and out just this way. But what about when it's not so easy? Now, what about when the mix of clean water and dirty water is a little bit more problematic? I'm thinking here of you know, the most shocking experience for me this year, just about, and I'm saying this honestly, was getting yet another report about those Menindee fish kills. Now, those, those images of... Rivers bloated with millions, trillions, numberless beings. And reports have come out, you know, researchers have looked into this and said that, you know, it's, 
in part the consequence of you know, governments mixing what's called black water with the clean water. The black water, which is a natural byproduct after floods, you know, floods happen, it accumulates lots of you know, debris, brings it back into the, the river, you know, it does that naturally a little bit, and that matter breaks down. And of course, that suffocates the river, in fact, a little bit, if there's too much of that black water. But the government apparently was releasing in order to satisfy its water you know, reallocation requirements, releasing black water in with the clean water. And they've been able to monitor this and see that, yes, just day before or days before these mass fish killings, that's what the government did. So how are we supposed to live with facts like this, the muddiness of reality like this? Well, of course, the Bodhisattva way is to not turn away one bit. You know, to let this fact of muddy water, clean water, mixing together, sometimes too much muddy water, sometimes too clean the water, but to let all of this startle us awake. I mean, there's nothing more startling than that fish kill. I mean, talk about startle, the fish in the water becomes muddy. I mean, that, those photographs say it all. But we're here to be startled into the fact that this is the world we're in. This is the reality that we share. We're part of this. You know? We're instrumental, if we're part of it, in any change that might be possible, anything that could be of some benefit down the track. So what's it like to not turn away, to actually wade into this water? Well, I'm going to sort of draw this talk to a close a little bit with uh, one of Barbara's favourite poets. Oh, <laughs> Raymond. Raymond Carver. <laughs> and this poem's called The River. And listen in to what's going on here. <clears throat> I waded, deepening into the dark water. Evening and the push and swirl of the river as it closed around my legs and held on. Young grills broke water. Par darted one way, smolt another. Gravel turned under my boots as I edged out, watched by the furious eyes of King Salmon. Their immense heads turned slowly, eyes burning with fury as they hung in the deep current. They were there. I felt them there, and my skin prickled. But there was something else. I braced with the wind on my neck, felt the hair rise as something touched my boot, grew afraid at what I couldn't see. Then of everything that filled my eyes, that other shore heavy with branches, the dark lip of the mountain range behind, and this river that had suddenly grown black and swift. I drew breath and cast anyway, prayed nothing would strike. Now I would say that Mu is the prayer that nothing will strike, that no thing will finally strike. 
And nothing does strike, does come all the way home when we allow ourselves to finally darken and grow quiet, letting all the sounds and sensations of the river or of our life fully penetrate just as they are, including all the uncomfortable feelings, all the frightening ones, even the terrifying ones. And when we allow that to happen, that's when transformation takes place. It's when we're shaken and startled by emptiness that we're returned whole in every detail. In the range, in the juniper tree, in the shaking staff, in the glowing canopy, in the muddy water, in the dead fish, in the quiet evening, even the very act of casting away itself. And I think it's true that the teacher's job is to always cast away anyway, praying that nothing will strike, praying that nothing will strike. So to uphold this prayer, that's what our zazen is. That's what we do with zazen. No matter how tired, sore, relaxed, happy or defeated we might feel. We cast away anyway with an infinitely open heart and mind. And that's when nothing or move finally has the chance to strike, confirming the transmission that is already here, just as you are. Thank you for your trouble. Thank you.